listening to right where you are sitting now. Hi, welcome to episode 30, the big 3-0 of Sitting Now. Um, joining me in the uh, in the hot seats, it's plural this time, is Austin Gandhi and Raymond, haven't, and Raymond Wiley, rather. Haven't had you guys on for a while. How have you been? Oh, we've been great, Ken. Um, we've uh, recovered from our trip to your beautiful country, and we appreciate your hospitality while we stayed with you. And um, yeah, we... we we're with you earlier today for this great interview, um, and we appreciate you having us on. Yeah, it's uh, the first one we've done in front of a sort of live audience as, as such, so it's, it's been quite cool. So today we basically recorded the interview uh, with Isaac Bonwitz um, on Stickham, which is something I know a lot of other podcasts have done, so we're not exactly blazing a trail here or anything, but it was good fun. Um, did you guys enjoy having a live audience in the background? Yeah, I think it definitely added something to uh, to see the user input as it uh, as the interview was progressing. Um, some of it totally off topic and World of Warcraft related, yeah, um, but you, you <laughs> for the most part, I think it was interesting to see people, you know, their immediate reactions, and we got a few questions out of it too. That was neat. You guys started a guild whilst we were. Uh, <laughs> That's right, the Order of the Secret Fire. Ah, it sounds very magical. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we'll stick around, and we're just going to have some adverts, and we'll see you after that. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of, of kind of educating the public to as to what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.eerieradio.com. Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? And that's about 9 pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Comic Geek Speak. Speechless. Mad Kane. This Week in Tech. Warrentown Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Play. Ground, offbeat, the logo factory, the exit 50, this and that with Jeff and Pat, thoughts on psychiatry, web hosting show, Merlin from Berlin, random cast, Jazz with Tiger, American Road Trip show, the Drew In podcast, the Slam Idol podcast, Forgotten Tales, the Zencast, XboxStation.net, how to do stuff. Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. And we're back. Uh, there were some great adverts there, as always. <laughs> um, so uh, today, yeah, I mean that's what we do best here on Sitting Now. I mean. The rest of it can pretty much, you know, it's an hour and a half of rubbish, but the adverts, they're good. Anyway, um, so today's guest is Isaac Bonwitz. Any thoughts on today's guests, guys, before we roll the interview? I think it was interesting to, I guess, hear the voice of somebody that um, has been a part of my my magical background for a long time. I think he sounded a lot like Terrence McKenna to me. I think he may, in fact, have been Terrence McKenna that we were talking to. Yeah, indeed. 
the voice is the voice is similar. There's a there's a voice that goes along with a particular kind of orientation, I think. But mm. he didn't talk about the early hominids on the mushroom uh, sprouted plains and all that stuff. Oh, Alas, but he's incognito now. And he didn't mention 2012 once. It's great. Sure. Uh, it must actually have been Isaac Bonowitz and not Terrence McKenna who was on the show today. Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. I think we've clearly established that. But it was cool to, you know, kind of get his perspective on things. He's obviously been, you know, moving in these circles for a while. Um, and I think it's, I don't know, uh, it, it's instructive, I guess, to see a perspective that's informed by really having been, I guess, one of the first uh, within a particular kind of movement that we've seen grow and possibly change and fade um, in and out over time. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think that um, it, it's good to compare the material that we talk about in this particular interview to our um, beginning of the year special from, I think it was like six or seven episodes ago here on Sitting Neil, where we talked about the state of neo-paganism and occult movements, especially in the United States as we saw them. And um, I think it's a good continuation of some of the topics that we brought up in that conversation. So. So, uh, I mean, Isaac Bonwitz, I suppose we should give him kind of a brief introduction, although he does a pretty good job himself. I mean, he's been involved in the neo-paganism and the cult movement for years. And Austin, you said he's been a big part of your magical life. Could you uh, elaborate on that at all? Oh, it's just one of those books that I think you, you inevitably come across. Um, uh, Real Magic, the book that I guess he's, he's uh, most well known for. Um, if you don't come across it, you're, you're just not going to cult bookstores. So it's neat to, you know, um, I guess... You know, you look at that book, and in a, in a lot of ways, uh, there are certain parts of it that are terribly dated. Um, like the the bit where he's talking about in the mid 1980s. By the mid 1980s, people will be accessing psychic powers at an incredible level. You know, those kind of things um, pass and fade, obviously, with uh, with the times. Um, but there are still things in that book that I think are very relevant, um, and I guess are huge contributions um, on a practical level, like the laws of magic section that he briefly talked about with us. Um, I think there. Are there are things in that that retain their value. Mm. Yeah, and the conversation on cults, I think, is another. It's the the, the system he came up with for identifying cult activity uh, within the appendices when it, to this book that we'll talk about here in the interview. Um, that's that's used by a lot of people. That's not just something that people who are into the occult are aware of. Okay, well, let's go to that interview now, and we'll get back to you after that. Thanks for coming on the show, Isaac. Could you give us a kind of brief biography of yourself, please? Oh, good heavens. Um, <laughs> I was born in uh, a town called Royal Oak, which is actually an excellent place for somebody who's going to be an archdruid someday. Uh, Royal Oak, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. Um, when I was 11, the family went to Southern California, and I didn't have anything better to do, so I went with them. Uh, went to uh, the University of California at Berkeley in the late 60s. Uh, and got a bachelor's degree in magic, first one ever given, and as far as I know, the last one ever given. <laughs> and I subsequently had a number of short jobs in various locations around the United States, 
most of them involving the field of magic, parapsychology, the occult, paganism, etc. Um, I had a period of about 10 years when I went on what is traditionally called a magical retreat, but in point of fact, I said, I think I want to earn a real living for a while, and uh, got involved in computer technology, and I was a computer consultant for a few years, uh, actually made a decent income at it, uh, and I discovered that the secret to being a successful computer consultant was staying one chapter ahead of the client in the user manual. <laughs> Uh, these days, I do a lot of different things to earn a living. I, uh, I still write books, but as any of your listeners who are writers will know full well, that doesn't actually earn much money. Um, I occasionally do lectures and workshops uh, at seminars and uh, conferences. I read tarot cards, uh, and I do custom pagan and subcultural weddings. So uh, what actually drew you into the occult generally? I mean, what was the kind of, most people have a kind of story about how they got into the occult. What's yours? Well, yes, and, and, and mine was rather a disreputable uh, uh, story. I was around 13 years old, and I was doing odd jobs at a local uh, donut shop. And... One of the waitresses who worked there had a five-year-old, and she asked me to babysit, so I started babysitting her five-year-old on a regular basis. And one day while I was at her apartment, which was right behind the donut shop, she uh, said, come into the kitchen. I've got something to show you. And she pulled this apple out of the freezer. And the apple had been stuck with about 100 different colored toothpicks. And I said, what's that? And she said, that's Mrs. Johnson. And I said huh? Brilliantly. And she said, never mind. And she gave me some gumbo and uh, went to work. Well, I found out the next day when I went to work at the donut shop that uh, Mrs. Johnson had had a heart attack the night before. And hmm. that was when I realized, hey, this stuff works. <laughs> so uh, a completely unethical example of magic, but a dramatic enough one that it sparked my interest, and I proceeded to um, read everything I could get my hands on on the topic of magic, parapsychology, the occult, quote-unquote, um, primitive religions, which meant everybody's other than your own, um, and science fiction. And eventually I began to realize that most of these people were talking about the same thing, just from different angles. Hmm. So... Um, that inspired me to do the studies that I did at the university and to eventually write my first book, Real Magic, Excellent. which is still in print after all these years. Could you tell us a bit about the Reformed Druids of North America? I've always been interested in this group. Could you give us a kind oh, of Oh, they're a... fun. They're fun. <laughs> Could you give us a kind of a backstory of like who they are, what they do, and how you became involved with them, please? Sure. Once upon a time, in the mists of antiquity, 1963. <laughs> There was at a small college in Northfield, Minnesota, called Carleton College, a requirement that all students had to go to chapel once a week or else. Uh, they could go to whatever the church or synagogue or whatever of their choice was, but everybody had to go to religious services at least once a week. Now, this was during those dark days when colleges still were functioning in loco parentis as crazy parents and therefore felt it was their obligation to make sure that the kids went to church. Well, a bunch of uh, students were sitting around the cafeteria one day complaining about this, and one of them says, says he, you know, I never mentioned this before, but my ancestors have been druids for generations. And they said, tell us more. 
So he uh, told him a little bit about Druidism. As near as I can tell, he was probably a son or a grandson of somebody who had belonged to the United Ancient Order of Druids, a fraternal group tracing back to England, as a matter of fact. Uh, and they decided that they would organize a Druid grove or congregation at the college and start having regular meetings, which they proceeded to do. Uh, in these meetings, they did invocations to the Earth Mother, to various Celtic gods and goddesses, including one they apparently made up out of thin air. Uh, and they would uh, consecrate a glass full of the waters of life, otherwise known as Iskabia, or Irish whiskey, and pass that around for communion. Hmm. Well, for some strange reason, their ceremonies became increasingly popular. And by the end of the first uh, year of them doing this, they had 70 or 80 students showing up for their Sunday afternoon, because who wants to get up in the morning on Sunday if you're a student, um, and getting a great deal of attention. And when they came back the next fall, uh, they discovered that the chapel rule was no longer in the student handbook, and the Archdruid of Carleton, that was what he called himself, uh, called the people together and told them, hey, we don't have to keep doing these silly ceremonies anymore. And that was when someone said, but wait a minute, Samhain is coming up, and that's my favorite holiday. So much to the surprise and the eventual horror of the founder of the Reformed Druids of North America, who is now an extremely embarrassed Anglican priest, <laughs> uh, the Reformed Druids kept going. Uh, students kept doing the ceremonies. People kept attending them. They ordained new clergy. And as the students went off to do graduate school work at other colleges and universities, they brought uh, the Reformed Druids with them. And one of those grad graduating students turned out to be my college roommate, Robert Larson, and he got me involved in Druidism. So, uh, I mean, what did that entail? I mean, I've heard uh, various stories, actually, one from Robert Anton Wilson that was playing in the chat room earlier on, which is that um, you actually, uh, to avoid um, religious, having to uh, partake in any kind of Christian uh, sort of Sunday school stuff, you could, you could sort of uh, go off and say you were part of another religion as long as you actually practiced that religion. Is that true? Well, not quite. <laughs> um, the Reformed Druids started out with the same policy that most of what I call the Mesopagan or mixed pagan and Christian groups in uh, the world, in, in um, uh, Druidry and Masonry did. And they, in fact, they got the idea from the Masons that Druidism was not a religion, that it was a philosophy and a way of life, and that you could belong to any religion or none and still be a Druid. Mm. Uh, the, uh, the Masons require you to profess a belief in at least one god. But uh, the uh, Mesopagan Druids, of the sort who became the ancient order of Druids and all its different offshoots, did not. Mm. Well, they took the same policy at uh, Carleton. They said Reformed Druidism was a philosophy, not a religion, and that therefore you could belong to any other religion and also be a Reformed Druid. I considered Druid, Druidism to be an, an ism, to be a religion, and the ways that uh, the groves I was associated with practiced it, we practiced it as a neo-pagan religion, one of the modern reconstructions of older religious paths. Uh, eventually, I started my own Druid organization called Arnriachtain, 
which is Irish Gaelic for our own Druidism, and pronounced by most people as ADF, those being the initials. And in ADF, um, we start out by saying, yes, we are a neo-pagan religion based on reconstructing a pan-Indo-European approach to Druidism. Mm, interesting. Now, I mean, after you uh, joined the uh, RDNA, sorry, I'm getting all these uh, acronyms mixed up. <laughs> um, yes. And according to one of our listeners and also Wikipedia, by the looks of it, you had some involvement with the Church of Satan, and I'm quite interested in this. Uh, how did this no, come about? No, no, the, 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 the time factor there is switched around. Oh, okay, so this is before. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I spent some eight months as a member of the Church of Satan when I was, I believe, 17. Okay. And I you... was a teenage Satanist. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Um, that was before I, I, I think I may have known about Druidism and started getting involved in it, but wasn't heavily involved in Druidism at that point. Um, I had been doing street theater, agitprop. Um, annoying and and uh, picketing and making fun of the evangelical preachers who came to the university campus to try to save the souls of all us sinful students. So I decided that I would uh, dress up as a preacher and start preaching sermons on behalf of the devil. And I called myself the devil's advocate. Mm. And what I did was I used the basic... Uh, argument styles and techniques that the evangelicals were using, only I twisted them to make fun of them. Well, I had been doing that for several weeks, and there had been a small story in the local newspaper about it when a voluptuous young lady came up to me and said, Hi, I'm a Satanist. Would you like to be one too? <laughs> Reverend LaVey would like to meet you. Uh, so, uh, ba basically, I, uh, she, uh, enticed me into joining the, uh, Church of Satan with all sorts of unspoken promises that, of course, were never followed through on, because, what the hell, I was just a long-haired hippie kid. <laughs> and so I met, uh, Howard Levy, who in those days was going by the name, uh, Anton Sandor Levy, and became friends with him for a short period of time. And a member of the church, uh, I functioned actually functioned as one of his satanic altar boys for a couple of months. Kinky, uh, yeah, kinky. Uh, and 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 he was doing these ceremonial magical rituals that involved invoking, you know, Satan, the archetype, under various different names and functions. And um, I participated actively in the group for several months, and I started noticing some disturbing patterns. Mostly I was noticing how right-wing and fascist the majority of the members of the church were. Hmm. Now, in those days, I was what I now categorize as a liberal heterodox Satanist. That is to say, I was of the hippie-slash-punk-style Satanist, where my focus philosophically was on Lucifer as the rebel angel, as the symbol of revolution and anarchy. And what I discovered was that the vast majority of the members of this organization, including uh, Mr. LeVay himself, were the orthodox fascist style of Satanists, where their emphasis was on Satan as the dictator who rebelled so he could set up his own tyranny. And their emphasis was on might makes right and smash your enemies and do any damn thing you like. And that wasn't, to me, what I thought 
you know, a modern religion needed to be. So I got into a number of increasing political arguments with people. This was the the Vietnam era. And eventually they kicked me out of the church for heresy. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm the only person I know who ever got kicked out of a satanic church for heresy. <laughs> yeah, it seems a bit difficult, doesn't it? <laughs> it is difficult. It's difficult. But uh, I'd been kicked out of a bunch of other cult groups for uh, heresy in the preceding years, so it was becoming a familiar experience. Hmm. Okay, so I've always been interested in the Church of Satan, and especially back in in the day, as it were, sort of things. So what, what what was a, a ritual like? What what were the kind of meetings like there when you were a member? Well, um, it's a very long time ago, and it's hard to remember. And I was just a kid. Hmm. <laughs> um, but um, he basically Anton LaVey was a was a dualist, and his 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 approach to creating a new religion was to take Roman Catholicism and turn it upside down. Hmm. So he called himself the Black Pope, and the rituals that they did were parodies of the Roman Catholic Mass because, after all, all the books written by the Christians said that that's what Satanists do. Hmm. So. Um, he used a, a naked woman as the altar because that's what the medieval church said that the people doing black masses did. Um, and uh, they invoked demons and they expressed various blasphemous ideas. He loved to throw uh, Enochian or something vaguely resembling Enochian into his ceremonies. Some of your listeners may know that that's a, uh, a magical language uh, discovered and or invented by John Dee. Yeah, yeah, and Edward Kelly way back when in British occult history, mm. and I, I remember one occasion when, in the middle of the ritual, I started spouting pseudo Enochian. Hmm. But I was using the same kind of guttural, harsh tones that Levey had been using for his, and everybody was very impressed. They thought it was terrific that this young kid had memorized all of this Enochian material, and. Uh, then uh, after the ceremony, when uh, we were taking our robes off, I quietly asked Aunt Anton, how'd you like my Enochian? And he gave me a glare that would have melted sheetrock. Hmm. Yeah. He was pissed. <laughs> but in point of fact, nobody else noticed. That was the level of occult ignorance he was depending on. Hmm. And to this very day, the vast majority of Satanists that I meet are ignorant they just don't know very much about magic, and they don't usually even know very much about the Satan archetype. Yeah. They can't be bothered to do any research. Well, um, I guess I was going to save this kind of particular question for later, um, but uh, I think looking at the the vast majority of people who come into um, the occult or paganism or magic in general these days, um, I think it's so much easier uh, for people to have access to oh, a it basic is now. yes yeah 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 a basic introductory level um but <clears throat> i find it odd and kind of i guess it, it raises questions as to why it seems um that with that change in general atmosphere like why it seems like so many pagans witches um or even self-described magicians you know people into the the crowley current why so many of them preserve that same kind of level of uh, ignorance um, in this particular day and age when it seems like it would be easier for people to get into that. Well, I have bad news for you. 
50 percent of the people in the world have IQs under 100. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> okay. The fact Wait of the matter to is the, of the argument there. <laughs> <laughs> The fact of the matter is that it's hard work and it takes intelligence to study magic and occultism beyond the 101 level. And most people are busy just surviving and they don't have the time or the energy. Those of us who love the occult, those of us who love all the old books and, and digging into all the esoteric details, we're a tiny minority. Hmm. This man deserves a prize, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> give, this, give this man a prize because he just managed to cut to the, the very heart of what we were talking about earlier this year mm. um, of why, uh, why even paganism, when we saw it, you know, have its little upshoot in the 90s, um, why it, too, will, will pass and fade in its particular manifestation. Because I, I think you managed to hit the nail on the head right there. Well, well, yes and no. The fact of the matter is you don't have to be an intellectual to be a pagan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you generally do if you want to be a druid or a ceremonial magician or a specific flavor of pagan or occultist. But, you know, the over 99.9% of all the people in human history were pagans, and most of them weren't intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, paganism has become a widespread global religious movement. And not everybody wants to be clergy. Not everybody wants to be ceremonial magicians. Some people just want to have a place they can go where they can worship the gods with other people and reconnect to nature and have a spiritual, you know, grounding for their life. None of that, you know, requires them to go beyond paganism 101. And there's no reason why we should, you know, try to force them or make them feel bad if they don't choose to do that. Mm. Yeah. A point well made. Um, I, I, I guess I'm curious, um, was it during your, per, ber, your Berkeley days bleh, um, that you became interested in parapsychology? I see that um, kind of uh, – that, that was a, a, an interesting interweaving of two things that I think both um, the occult world and parapsychology, they like to kind of uh, keep their backs to each other for some reason. Um, but I think, I think weaving them together into – um, a cohesive system of uh, magic being a, a way of expressing um, psychic connection or, or vice versa. I thought that was really interesting. Where, when did you start to get interested in that kind of stuff? Well, hang on just a moment. I'm going to uh, drag my uh, earphone cord over to the bookshelf behind me <laughs> and uh, grab a particular book to highly recommend to your readers. It's called Making Magic, Religion, Magic, and Science in the Modern World, and it's by... A man named Randall Styers, S-T-Y-E-R-S. Um, this is a book about how the word magic became so academically disreputable and unfashionable. That's interesting. Now, those of you who have ever been involved in academia know that the single most powerful force in the academy is not reason, is not logic, it's not research, it's fashion. Mm-hmm. Ideas come in and out of intellectual fashion. Uh, there's a famous par- uh, 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 a book about how scientific paradigms change. And the upshot by the end of the book is scientific paradigms change when old professors die. Hmm. And then the middle-aged professors get the seniority, and they become the old ones who are slowing down research and growth of knowledge. Nonetheless, 
for 200 years. Uh, the field of theology and the field of science both used the word magic as a whipping boy. They said, whatever it is we're doing, it's not that. The theologians said, magic is what those ignorant, superstitious peasants in the jungle are doing. Okay, We're doing spirituality. And the scientists said, magic is what those ignorant, superstitious witch doctors and medicine men are doing, and we're doing science. Of course, the uh, theologians included the scientists among the ignorant peasants, and the scientists included the theologians among the superstitious. But nonetheless, the point was uh, they were both pushing magic away as something that nobody rational and intellectual wanted to have anything to do with. The artists, of course, were laughing at both the theologians and the scientists because they know that all, of, all those different spheres of comprehension overlap with each other. And that that's where the magic is. Um, the reason that uh, parapsychology stayed away from the field of magic was that it was associated with superstition. And it was academically unfashionable to consider that magic was worth paying any serious attention to. This is why my graduating with an academic degree in magic was so shocking to the University of California. To the point where they had to put a sign up in the um, offices of what they called the College of Letters and Sciences, which was the liberal arts division. Under no circumstances are any more individual group majors using names like magic, witchcraft, sorcery, etc. to be approved. Hmm. Right? Because they were so terrified of the idea that magic might be real and worth studying. Mm, yeah actually can we just uh back up a bit I was, I was actually interested in how you actually got that degree we've actually been asked by one of our people in the chat room uh how did oh, you go back okay. so, weren't you doing psychology originally and then i started out as a psychology major but when i got to the university i discovered that the entire uh psychology department uh was being purged by the skinnerians the behavioralists, hmm. the people who believe that if you don't do something with rats or pigeons, it's not really scientific psychology. So in keeping with what I said a few minutes ago about the power of fashion in academia, all the psychology professors who wanted to teach any other kind of psychology were being shoved out the door on one excuse or another. Hmm. And I then looked at what was available in the psychology department at that point at the university. And I said, I am not really want to take most of those classes. I don't care about rats and pigeons. I care about people and the human mind and what it can do. Now I had read, uh, so I decided at that point I was just going to take the classes I was interested in. So I took a bunch of classes in anthropology and in sociology and in comparative religion. And then one day I realized that I had enough units together that I could actually put what they called an individual group major program into action. That was one of the very first of the tailor-your-own-degree programs that any of the colleges in the United States were experimenting with in the late 60s. So I found a member of the anthropology faculty to agree to be my sponsor, and I uh, took out some forms and filled them out in quadruplicate, and had my sponsors sign them in quadruplicate, and I filed them in quadruplicate, and then I went home and I did a spell in quadruplicate. 
I've always shuddered to think what might have happened if I'd only done that spell in triplicate. <laughs> but it worked, and I got officially approved, and I just kept taking the classes that I wanted to take that seemed to me to relate to the power of the human mind to make direct changes in the environment around them. And eventually I had enough units and I graduated, although not without uh, a strenuous effort by the fundamentalist Christian superintendent of education for the state of California to try to prevent me from doing it. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine it would be quite controversial, actually, to uh, have a college-approved uh, college well, degree in that. The, the, the problem was that the, uh, uh, the state superintendent was an extremely right-wing fundamentalist Christian, and he really freaked out at the fact that uh, some kid was going to get a degree in magic. So he started sending memos to the College of Letters and Science telling them, you know, to revoke my program and stop me from graduating. Well, fortunately, years before that, early, early on from nearly my first arrival at uh, the university, I had discovered where the real power lay at the university. And this is, this is an important life lesson for all you young folks out there. If you're involved in a university or any other large corporation or institution, the people with the real power are the secretaries. So I was friends with the secretaries in the College of Letters and Science. I brought them chocolate on Valentine's Day. I brought my big fuzzy dog with me to visit and let them, you know, have a break petting the dog and, and, and cooing and ooing. And they all loved me. So they kept losing the memos. The memos came in from Max Rafferty, the superintendent, and they were somehow wound up in the wrong files. Hmm. Uh, a, a couple of them got pushed behind a filing cabinet accidentally. And by the time they found the memos, I was already graduated. So that is how I managed to get my degree <laughs> in magic. Uh, so after this, you uh, went on to write what's uh, considered quite a seminal book, which was Real Magic. Can you tell us a little bit about what Real Magic is and uh, for those who right. haven't read it? Right. I, I decided that it was time to have a book about magic and the occult that was um, interdisciplinary, uh, that was global in outlook, and that was designed to be understandable by an ordinary person. Now, it was possibly the first Magic 101 book. Hmm. Although I know Uncle Alistair thought that Magic and <laughs> Theory and Practice was a 101 book, but it wasn't. Hmm, it's a bit more complicated, uh, isn't it, I think, uh, for, the, uh, for the beginner? Yes. So, Intentionally obfuscatory, I'd say. Uh, I decided to take you know, what I had learned in, at the university and in my previous reading uh, about the anthropology of folk religion, about parapsychology and, and uh, the study of psychic uh, talents and what I knew about comparative religions and write a book that would basically make it possible for anyone to understand what magic was and to attempt to start doing it for themselves. And I went to, and this is, this is a sad salutary story for any of the other writers in the audience right now. I went to a friend of mine in 1970 who was a high school English teacher. And I asked her, would you please go over this manuscript and see how much of it is understandable to somebody with a high school education? You know, a, a 12th grader level of reading and writing comprehension. And she said, okay, 
And so she went through the book and she marked a bunch of things that she thought were the vocabulary or the grammar was a little too high for a high school graduate. And I made all her changes and sent it off and it was published. Hmm. Nine years later, the second edition of Real Magic was published. And I had, it had gone out of print, and I was contacted by a publisher, and they said, you know, we really think this is a great book, and it ought to be in print, even though you would need a bachelor's degree to understand it. Hmm. I said, okay, and they did. That was the Creative Arts Book Company in Berkeley. Uh, and then 10 years after that, in 1989, uh, Samuel Weiser and company contacted me. And they said, we'd like to bring uh, Real Magic back into print. Uh, we specialize in keeping old occult classics in print. And even though the vocabulary level on it is a Ph.D. vocabulary level, we still think there's a market for the book. Hmm. Now, I had not changed the vocabulary level of the book during those years. But from 1970 to 1989... The reading ability of the general public in the United States was down so far that all of a sudden my 101 book looked like a 303 book to people. <laughs> yeah. um, you, I, I don't know if you've had the same pattern develop in the UK, but in the United States, ever since Ronald Reagan became president, we've had a concerted effort to sabotage public education. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, uh, it's, uh, not, it's not much different here, trust me. <laughs> well, right. Well, because they discovered, the powers that be discovered, that if you had a large population of highly educated young people, they would rebel hmm. against the power elite. That's what caused the counterculture. Yeah. So instead, they starved public education of the financial and other resources that it needed, uh, refused to pay teachers a high enough salary that they could get really top-notch teachers in the public school system. And, of course, their own private schools that the wealthy were educated in still kept up a high standard. There was a deliberate conspiracy. Mm. And I don't do a lot of conspiracy theories, but this one is just so damned obvious it's hard to miss. There was a deliberate conspiracy to make sure that the masses did not get well-educated enough to challenge their rulers. Yeah, you might guess my politics are liberal. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. One thing about real magic that always really interested me personally, um, actually, as I used to work in London for a cult watch group in called Inform, mm -hmm. and they actually used part of your book. And there's a section in it called uh, the A B C D E F, which is I think the advanced D E F. Bond, yeah, that's it. The advanced yes. Bonwitz cult danger evaluation frame. Can you talk a little bit about that, please? And that's really interesting. Well, that was something I came up with for, I believe, the second edition, 1979. Uh, in the late 70s, there was a lot of panic about evil cults, you know, brainwashing our children. And 90% of it was uh, uh, parents being upset that their children were drifting away from the childhood religions and looking for something else. So anything that wasn't a mainstream Judeo-Christian faith was labeled a cult. And it seemed to me that there actually was a difference between groups like Scientology and the Moonies on one hand, mm. and groups like the Vedanta Society and your local Buddhist temple on the other. And that we needed to have a way for people who did not have a specialized education in comparative religion 
to tell whether or not a given group was likely to be physically, emotionally, or spiritually, quote, unquote, dangerous to its members. Hmm. Now, leaving aside the idea that to many people of a conservative bent, any religion other than their own is spiritually dangerous, um, I decided to look at the actual behavior of various groups that had been in the newspapers, that I had read about, that were there in the historical record, um, and come up with a checklist where you could look at about, well, originally 15, now 18 different factors, and judge a group in comparison to other groups on a scale of 1 to 10. How much of something did they do uh, or not do? And this included things like uh, how much wisdom was credited to the leadership uh, by the members? You know, to, were members required to believe that the leadership never made any mistakes? Uh, it included things like how many front groups with different names does an organization have? How much emphasis was there on the membership spending most of their time going out and bringing in more members? Mm. How much of an emphasis was there on money raising? on doing activities that had nothing to do with the actual religion or philosophy and everything to do with making the leadership wealthy. So I came up with this list and I put it in uh, an appendix in the second edition of Real Magic. Uh, people can find it on my website at www.neopagan.net slash all capital letters, A-B-C-D-E-F <laughs> dot H-T-M-L. And I called it that because figuring these things out should be elementary. Yeah. Okay. Actually, uh, one of our members of the chat room here called Mad Harper is asking uh, if you could summarize the divine circle of the sacred groves, an example of cults. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, the divine, I talk about the divine circle of the sacred grove a bit in my book, Bonowitz's Essential Guide to Druidism, hmm. which is available in the UK, by the way. Um it's a group that somebody started up primarily with intention of making money and mm. give, getting themselves some personal power. Um, they plagiarized their teaching materials from other pagan organizations that had uh, correspondence courses and such. Uh, they plagiarized their training system from the early version of the training system I came up with for my own Druid organization, ADF. Um, they plagiarized even their logo and such from other Druid organizations. And then they proceeded to claim that they were a secret underground family tradition of Druidism that had existed for centuries. And that all other Druid organizations were but pale imitations of them. And they did things like set up, uh, you know, rural retreats where members were expected to go and live and uh, uh, take vows of poverty and give up all their worldly goods to the organization. And they had little herb stores and metaphysical shops they would run where the members were expected to work for free. Uh, and they proceeded to do a lot of other things that groups that we would normally refer to as cult groups tend to do. Hmm. Um, they had um, some scandals involving uh, children being either kidnapped or adopted without legal proceedings. Hmm. That was a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I gradually got contacted by several members of this organization who said, you know, we looked at the uh, 
cult danger evaluation frame, and this woman is sky high on all these different categories. So I did a little more investigation. I had already run into them previously because, well, this is an example. The woman who founded it, who has about 20 different pseudonyms, uh, the woman who founded it con had contacted me in the middle 80, 1980s and told me that she wanted to be a student, a member of ADF. She had no background in Druidism whatsoever. She hadn't studied any paganism, but she really wanted to learn. So I sent her, you know, the study materials we had at the time, and she joined the organization and, and subscribed to our newsletter and got a copy of our study program when it came out. And then a few years later, I find out that she's using our material mixed up with material from a Wiccan training group um, and claiming that it's all hers and uh, claiming that she, you know, has been a Druid her entire life, having been initiated as a Druid at Stonehenge by her parents back during World War II, hmm. which would be great, except there were no initiations being done at Stonehenge, and none of the British Druid groups ever initiated children. Hmm. <laughs> so, and then she gave us some other conflicting stories about how she had been a nurse in England during World War II. I didn't know they had any child nurses during World War II. So she kept telling a lot of funny stories about her credentials. And that was one of the reasons in ADF that we insisted that our study program had to be public, that student study records would be made public, and that we wouldn't ordain anyone unless everything they had done had been verified by mentors and older members of the organization to prove that they actually knew what they said they knew and that they could do what they said they could do. Hmm. Because... This has been the bane of occult and, and, and religious training systems for millennia. If you keep your standards of qualifications secret, then you let yourself wide open to being manipulated by con artists, plagiarists, and other people making false claims about what their credentials are. Hmm. Whereas if you have a published, in-print, easily accessible set of standards for your clergy or for the higher-ranking members of your organization, then anybody who wants to can verify whether or not a person is a BS artist or not. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's a plenty of plenty of cults around in England as well that seem to follow that same uh, that same. Well, route. <laughs> right. Now, I, 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 the word cult is used very, very loosely. I tend not to actually use it myself, hmm. except occasionally when I'm talking about particularly nasty organizations. There are a lot of funny religions around. Yeah. There have always been funny religions around. Um, the uh, New Religious Movements Studies section of the American Academy of Religion came to a conclusion some 20 or 30 years ago that New religions are always being started throughout human history. It's just that until recently, if you tried to start a new religion, the mainstream religion would kill you. Hmm. And the reason we have such an explosion of new religious movements and new magical organizations today is that the, po the, the theological powers that be can no longer kill you for starting your own religion. Mm, yeah. They'd love to, yeah. <laughs> but they can't get away with it anymore. No. Yeah. I think uh, we always mention it, but I think Bob Wilson used to talk about this quite a lot, didn't he? About the uh, if uh, churches could kind of go in there and uh, 
get rid of these cults, they, they probably would. <laughs> yes, right. Oh, uh, speaking of Bob Wilson, by the way, who was, a, who, who was a friend and colleague for a few years when I lived in Berkeley, he once started his own branch of the Reformed Druids. Yeah, it's RNA DNA, wasn't it? The RNA DNA, the Reformed Non-Aristotelian Druids of North America, <laughs> which... I'm sure Probably did. one of the best acronyms ever. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, before actually, before we go back to talking about the NR uh, DNA, um, on your Wikipedia page, and I hate to use this as a source of reference, but um, it says you had a, a varying degree of involvement with the Caliphate line of the OTO and uh, Wicca. That is that is quite true. Um, could you quite true. talk a bit about how you became? Because we've uh, recently done a show with oh, a member of the OTO. Oh, you're going to bring up my bad karma. <laughs> oh. Um, I am one of the two people most responsible for the revival of the OTO in America. Ah, right. And that's that's because uh, my old friend um, Stephen Abbott and I, who um, is stark raving bonkers and a brilliant intellect and probably one of the best authorities on the tarot you could ever interview for your show, mm. um, he and I introduced – a third friend of ours named William Heydrich to Grady McMurtry. Now, some people may vaguely recognize either of those names. Mm -hmm. William Heydrich is is a lovely man who uh, lives in uh, Marin County, California, uh, on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. And he was, uh, I used to say, he was the best example I had ever met of the advantage for a ceremonial magician to being born wealthy in that he could afford to buy all the books he wanted, including all the rare first editions. He could he could buy all of the gold and silver and jeweled, you know, equipment that a ceremonial magician is supposed to have. And he didn't have to work for a living. So he could spend as much time as he wanted doing all the magical exercises and practicing his skills. Grady McMurtry was uh, at that point, I believe, in his 60s or so, although I'm a little vague right now on, the, on his precise birth date. But he, had, he was uh, uh, someone who had met Alistair Crowley when Grady was in the Air Force in England during World War II. And he used to play chess with Uncle Al. And at one point when um, one of the lodges down in Los Angeles, the infamous Solar Lodge that was associated with Jack Parsons and uh, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, was, was causing a bit of a ruckus, uh, Alistair Crowley gave um, Grady McMurtry a document appointing him as a caliph which in, in uh, Islamic uh, culture is a successor to the prophet. Oh, right. And authorizing him to go investigate what was going on in California and in the event of his death to eventually take over the organization. Well, he gave similar papers to a few other people, too, including Gerald Gardner uh, and a man named Carl Germer, who actually had seniority on the other two. Mm. Um, in any event, Uncle Alistair passed over. Uh, Gerald Gardner tried to run an OTO lodge in England for six or eight months, failed miserably, and went back to focusing on what would eventually be known as Wicca. Carl Germer became the international head of the OTO for a few years. And then upon his death, um, there were several claimants to the throne. 
Grady McMurtry probably had the best claim to the throne, but there were other people who, you know, had, you know, long, loud, and thoroughly documented arguments in their favor as well. <laughs> like Kenneth Grant, for example. Like yeah. Kenneth Grant, yes, mm. sure, fine. Um, quite the scholar. Mm. Um, but Grady was attempting to revive the OTO in California, where he was then living, and uh, tried a couple of times and did not succeed. And then one fateful day, uh, Stephen Abbott and I introduced him to Bill Heydrich. And Bill Heydrich said, well, heck, I'll, I'll fund the cost of getting this organization going again. I think it, it would be a terrible loss to the world if the OTO vanished. And so um, he put his financial resources behind Grady's effort to revive the OTO. And they succeeded. And during the, uh, the first year, uh, when, it was, when it was time to do the first round of initiations, they drafted me to help do the initiations. Hmm. Now, mind you, I never made it any further in the OTO than the Minerval degree, which is the zeroth degree. Hmm. But they needed somebody who knew how to do a ritual. <laughs> Yeah. So um, there was this big uh, tent that they put up in Grady McMurtry's backyard, and we proceeded. Bill Heydrich and Grady and I proceeded to initiate a, the first round of members of the new OTO. Yeah. So you were like almost yeah, like to a their, to their zero with first, and in one case, a second degree. So you were kind of like so, a consultant, uh, a sort of ritualistic consultant of sorts. I I, I guess I guess. <laughs> um, and at that point, my third wife and I, the uh, fabulous uh, Sally Eaton, um, got very involved in the OTO. She loved doing theatrical rituals, so she helped uh, uh, organize and uh, put on the Rites of Aloysius, which was a series of ritual dramas that Alistair Crowley had written, which people can find in the Equinox if uh, they're looking for that. And... Uh, we did the Gnostic Mass, and uh, I once actually got denounced for blasphemy by the other members of the OTO for the way that we did the Gnostic Mass. Hmm. Again, so Church of Satan and the OTO, <laughs> it seems. Well, you know, um, we decided that we would do the mystery of the ninth degree during the middle of the Gnostic Mass, because according oh, to <laughs> our research of Alistair's notes for the Gnostic Mass, that was exactly what was supposed to be being done. So we did it. Hmm. Uh, I'm not going to go into any details of it right now. <laughs> yeah, for legal reasons, Moon. A, a mystery beyond our grade. <laughs> well, it's a mystery beyond your grade, and I do take the oaths that I take, and I'm very selective about which oaths I take, reasonably seriously. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, Sally and I did uh, most, not all, of the Mystery of the Ninth Degree uh, on the altar during the uh, uh, Gnostic Mass performances that were done in the temple that the uh, OTO had at that time. Hmm. And I was denounced for, for blasphemy for doing it that way. And I was rather proud of that because I, I had thought it was impossible to blaspheme an Aleister Crowley ritual. Hmm. Yeah. No. <laughs> By doing anything other than, I don't know, bringing in a procession with crosses and holy water, you know? <laughs> the lady yeah, kept but, her clothes on the whole time. Uh, no. But in any event, so um, 
we were active. Uh, Sally and I were active with the OTO for a few years. Then Sally and I moved out to uh, Manhattan for a while. I lived in Manhattan for five years and eventually got time off for good behavior and uh, was able to leave the city when I split up with Sally. And I believe she is still involved with the OTO, although I do not know at this point on what level. And uh, I hear from the OTO every now and then. I'm still on good terms with them. It's just not my cup of tea. <laughs> That's fine. We've actually a uh, Katie Prime in the chat room wants to know what you think of the state of the occult world and the various movements you've been talking about uh, tonight and uh, how, how they stand today. Well, let's see. Are you uh, perhaps familiar with Sturgeon's Law? I'm not, personally. But, uh... All right. Theod please. Theodore Sturgeon, uh, the classic, famous science fiction author. Hmm. Uh, once made a remark about the quality of fanzine, which were amateur publications, fanzine content and production in uh, the science fiction community. And he once said, well, it's crud, but 90% of everything is crud. <laughs> now, the word crud comes from ecrudescence, which was the technical term for the green or purple ink that filled up the O's and the E's and the A's on the old hand-typed stenciled mimeographs. So that when you print it off, this is ancient technology, people. This is long before computers and the Internet. When you printed them off, the letters would be filled with this glop. The ink would bunch up in the small, inside the smaller uh, uh, typed letters. And that was called crud, short for ecrudescence. And it had become the slang at the time for junk, stuff that wasn't very good. So he said 90% of everything is crud. This is often uh, misquoted as another word that begins with CR. <laughs> um, it has uh, long been my observation that that was an extremely kind and generous percentage that he chose when it comes to a lot of creative efforts. And the occult and metaphysical field is, among many other things, a collection of art forms. So you expect 90% of it to be crud. Okay. That's okay. 90% of music is crud. 90% of painting is crud. 90% of photography is crud. 90% of writing is crud. And I say that as a writer. It's, it, it is the nature of the creative process that not everything that gets produced is going to be of excellent quality. With that as a very long preface, I would say I'm actually fairly pleased with the quality of the occult movement these days. Granted, it has been dumbed down to an incredible degree, but it has also been, and that is part of it being thoroughly democratized. Mm. All right, There is so much stuff on the internet now including lots and lots and lots of books and manuscripts that once upon a time were big secrets mm -hmm. that anybody who wants can go read this material, they can learn this information, they can practice exercises, and they can learn to exalt their own consciousness. There is no longer a situation where you have gatekeepers, for good or ill, uh, making it impossible for people to get access to the information. Hmm. Yeah. This th this was a secret that we learned in Henri Fane in our own Druid study program for leadership roles. Uh, the first 
program system that we came up with for the first five or ten years was a lovely system, but it required everybody to send reports to a single person who was the preceptor or a head of education for the organization, and she had to review everybody's documentation to prove that they had read the books they said they read, that they had taken the classes they said they had taken, that they had demonstrated the skills that they said that they had mastered. And the problem was she became a bottleneck, despite you know her best efforts. She's a brilliant woman, but it was just too much work for one person to handle. So that teaching system was scrapped, and we evolved a new one that had a series of mentors so that the senior students helped the junior students. And there were committees of people available to review the documentation on people's work. And because of that, we now have a very sizable percentage of our membership successfully working their way through the study program. Excellent. That's good. Now, that carries over to other occult systems. The fact that there's no longer, you know, one dozen available organizations with overlapping memberships and half a dozen harried, frantic preceptors trying to keep track of everybody's study. Hmm. Yeah, you have independent study with a vengeance going on. And that has downsides to it in that there's nobody to, you know, hold you grounded and connected to the earth plane level of reality. It's very easy for people to fool themselves into thinking that they know more than they really know. But all in all, I think it's a positive development. Mm, that's interesting because I, I know a lot of uh, uh, occultists we've spoken to or on the show or I've spoken to in general tend to find the idea quite terrifying i think the idea that these uh you know these once sacred documents are now available for everyone to read i mean i think it's quite a good thing personally but uh like you said but when i when i first wrote real magic back in 1970 i was dedicated to the idea of making magic available to the masses Mm. why because it's powerful and it is the only form of power that has not been co-opted and corrupted by the power elite. Money is their primary tool. Financial power is under their control. They own the media. So the media is under their control. They own academia. So academia is under their control. Every known form of power, whether it's physical power or social power, is controlled by the wealthy and the powerful, except magic. Because anybody with a nervous system can do magic. Let, let me ask you this. Does that mean that we're left with mob rule uh, in, in the occult world? Well, that's always the problem with democracy now, isn't it? Um, the challenge for those who think of themselves as the elite is to stop sneering at the mob and start educating them. Hmm. Using every available intellectual and artistic tool to do so, to teach them what magic really is, how to use it safely, um, how to use it ethically and appropriately, and to stop sitting on our hands going, tisk tisk, isn't that awful that the peasants have learned magic? I mean, mm-hmm. we're getting the same response from the people who think of themselves as the occult elite that um, uh, the Japanese elite had when gun, uh, guns were introduced into Japan by the Western world. Hmm. Oh, my gods, ordinary peasants can now kill noblemen. Hmm. 
And that's a terrifying thought if you're a nobleman and your entire life is built on oppressing the masses. Yeah. Okay. Well, so well there, there, and, there, and there's simply an ego factor. Hmm. Okay. There's a lot of people. We, we know in order to do magic successfully, you have to have at least some ego because you're attempting to assert your will on the universe. But as you may have probably already known, there are one or two people in the occult community who let their egos get out of control. <laughs> yeah. And, and their attitude towards magic becoming something that everybody can do is primarily ego-based fear of competition. Hmm. I mean, one thing, uh, one, someone in our chat room is asking, uh, Matt Harper, is asking, uh, what about reconstructionist movements? Are they, ne are they necessary? Because the ADF seems to have gone in that direction, at least. Well, ADF started out as a reconstructionist neo-pagan druidism. Um, the, the, the primary existence reason for a separate Celtic reconstructionist movement from ADF uh, had more to do with the egos of the people involved than it had to do with their taking a different approach to what they were doing. Hmm. Um, ADF had a very heavy emphasis on both scholarship and artistic creativity from the beginning. Um, but there were uh, people who didn't want to play with our football and our rules. They wanted to make up their own. And some of them decided they didn't want to call themselves druids even though they wound up doing all the same things that the Druid groups are doing. That's okay. You know, if, if, if they prefer not to use the term, that's all right. Uh, they did have a legitimate concern that um, if you're going to have a public pagan religion, naming it after the clergy may be confusing because people will think that everybody is clergy. Mm. And that is, in point of fact, not the case in ADF or most of the other Druid organizations, but it is a confusing bit of terminology. But we're stuck with that. So we continue to call everybody who belongs to the organization a Druid. And we came up with other vocabulary to refer to the different leadership roles that people play. Hmm. Um, but the Reconstructionists are wonderful people. They do great research. Um, we read their books. They read our books. Um, we compare notes, um, and I think Reconstructionism, when done in a manner that is sane and has a sense of humor and perspective about itself, uh, is a wonderful part of the spectrum of the whole pagan revival. Um, a lot of the people who call themselves Reconstructionists are people who are politically or socially conservative, and they want to separate themselves out from the pagans who they see as being either ignorant fluffy bunnies or uh, dirty freaking hippies, long-haired, you know, free love advocates. And they want to be more dignified. Hmm. So they don't use the word pagan, many of them, to describe themselves. Uh, you see the same thing with the Ozatruer movement, the Norse pagan revival. Uh, they prefer to call themselves, by and large, heathens rather than pagans, because they uh, uh, many of them associate paganism with the modern, uh, more liberal neo-pagan movement. The irony is that the history of the Asatru movement for the last 40 years has been an internal battle between the right-wing mesopagan Asatruers and the liberal neo-pagan Asatruers. Hmm. And right now, the liberals are winning. Yeah. I mean, 
obviously we've uh, we've had you on the line for quite a long time now actually uh so before we kind of let you go and let you get back to it we didn't mean to keep you for so long actually um uh, i want to talk to you about what you're actually working on now and uh, i believe you're working on some new books about neo-paganism and the, on, also the laws of magic could you uh give us a bit of a rundown on those two projects please well i'm i'm uh writing a book about you know basically a field guide to neo-paganism which is going to be a, a fairly light, breezy introduction to all the major flavors of the modern pagan movement. Oh, that's interesting. And I'm also working on a book that I'm trying to make um, fairly scholarly on the lo- the laws of magic. Mm. Uh, as, you, as you recall, because you read Real Magic, I had a whole chapter on it. Mm-hmm. I also had a, a an updated version of that chapter in the book I wrote with my wife a couple of years ago called Real Energy, oh. which you're... Uh, your listeners might be interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, this time I'm doing a full-length book on what the laws of magic are, how they relate to scientific laws in other disciplines, both the physical and the biological and the social, and how they can be most effectively applied to magical and religious and artistic ritual. Okay. And if people want to uh, find any of your writings online or they want to sort of get in contact with you, where's the best place to point them to? Well, the best place to buy the books is, I hate to say it, your local metaphysical bookstore. Hmm. Uh, I know that uh, Atlantis in downtown London, yep. run by the, the wonderful, wonderful ladies. Geraldine. Um, they have Geraldine, yes. Uh, they have uh, copies of uh, most of my books available. And if you're too far away from a local metaphysical bookstore, um, uh, Amazon.uk has them. Mm. So they're, they're, they're relatively easy to get. One book is currently listed as out of print, the witchcraft book. But I have been informed by the, uh, uh, by the publishers that that will be back in print. Excellent. They don't tell me when, but <laughs> they do say they are reprinting it. And uh, if they, do you have a, a website yourself? Uh... My main website is neopagan.net. Excellent. And uh, you, I assume you accept questions from people if they want to follow up any of this any of this interview? Uh, sure. Uh, I have a fa- uh, I have a Facebook page. I have a personal one, and my wife and I have a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Isaac dot Phaedra, P-H-A-E-D-R-A dot Bonowitz. Okay. Well, that's great. Thanks a lot, Isaac. We'll have to get you back on because I get the feeling we only really kind of scratched the surface. of. Oh, yeah. We uh, just got started here. Yeah. <laughs> well, this, this was a lot of fun. You asked some good questions, and I look forward to doing it again. Okay, brilliant. Um, Thanks, Isaac. Thank you. Thank you, guys.
and welcome to My Space Heroes number 13. 13. Ooh, 13. Ooh. Uh, this week, month, this time, you'll see each poor gremlin small. E-R-O-D-E with R-O-2 and early paintings fundamentalist.
Okay, and we're back. And that was a really good interview. I actually enjoyed that. And it went it went down different paths to the well, different routes, I suppose, to what I expected. I mean, did you guys enjoy it? Or? Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, I think it was a lot of fun, actually. Mm, he's an interesting guy. He's um, a lot of experience in uh, multiple occult groups. I found uh, interesting, including the ATA, something we bring up quite a lot on the show. I mean. I didn't realize like quite how much involvement he had in the kind of the early days of the ATA. So I found that. Yeah, that was kind of a surprise there. He came out with a couple little juicy tidbits. Yeah, I'm sure I've never seen that before. And I've read quite a lot about the ATA. <laughs> so that was quite interesting. Um, also, like Raymond said earlier, the cult uh, analysis section I found really interesting. It's, uh, it's good to know that even the occult movements are keeping an eye on cults as well. <laughs> so were there any other particular points of interest you guys wanted to chat about now? Yeah, well, uh, one last thing is I'd say that some of his responses really, in many ways, diffused a lot of our um, dismay at the current state of the neo-pagan movement. You know, he just sort of, just with the, with the voice of experience, I guess, he just sort of laughed off a lot of the things that we have a hard time swallowing mm. these days. And I think, I think that does come from experience, because you see people whether they're good or bad sort of come and go over the years and it gives you i guess it gives you a different perspective than um us in our mid to late 20s so. yeah. yeah i think he he was i guess resorting to to an argument by natural law you know that you know these uh, you know the, the pagan movement may be hopelessly disappointing but that's because almost everything is you know oh. crud crud um <laughs> And I think that that is worthwhile, you know, keeping in mind, you know, the, the signal to noise ratio may be, you know, it may seem higher or lower at different times. Um, but ultimately, you know, you're st you've still got to do some legwork to find the good stuff that's out there. And there are certain internal controls that you can apply. But in a lot of ways, I think his perspective of, you know, there's just not that many people that are that interested, you know, in getting really, really down and dirty with the material, um, and that that is okay. Mm. You know, and that's that's a refreshing viewpoint, I suppose, um, you know, to hear somebody um, enunciating, you know, that paganism or occultism or magic isn't just for people who uh, want to make it their, that, that, that that's their intellectual pursuit, you know, that it has an application for um, the vast majority of people, that something good can be gained from it, and it doesn't have to be necessarily the um, exclusive domain of the intellectual elite. Yeah, right. And and a good argument and well made. And it, and I think time will tell, at least for our generation, as to whether or not this argument proves true, or whether or not the the need for setting a different tone in the future is going to become necessary. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I especially I found it interesting the way that he said that some groups are actually going to embrace the internet, whereas I think our kind of general opinion on the matter was that these older groups kind of hated the idea of the internet you know, and this, this uh, democratization of their information you know. well in a lot of cases it shows many of these group leaders who i call false elders in a lot of cases it shows them for who they are if you've got to if you've got to present yourself to the to the world to a wider audience and not just to these not just to people who are sort of a captive audience part of your grove or circle then all of a sudden you're your own drawbacks come into the light. You know what I'm saying? And it, it's that way for your followers too, if you're one of these false elders. When they see other people looking at you sort of askance, hmm. a lot of times the reaction isn't to get, get more into the cult, but to realize what they're dealing with. Just like uh, Isaac's stories of his youth, you know, with um, Satanism and other sort of cult-like activity. So. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you guys um, back in out there radio, uh, you interviewed the um, the current head of the Church of Satan. Uh, what did you think of the uh, the comparisons between what Isaac had to say about them and the guy you interviewed? Um, I'd say that what Isaac was talking about was the Church of Satan at a very early point in its existence. So we got to think this is 1966 that it was first founded, I think, and then. Isaac's in the group in 1969 or so. I mean, this is an era when um, sort of these ideas of Satanists and witches were like popular bad guys in horror movies, like Rosemary's Baby, okay? And so people that wanted to be into groups like that at the time, I think, had different motivations from someone who might join the Church of Satan now. The the same rebellion, I think, is there. But the... um, the idea that we're just going to take Christianity and turn it on its head and put it in a sort of a cult-like atmosphere, I think that's pretty much... I don't think that's the way it is in the Church of Satan now. Now, um, what do you think, Austin? I mean, you've known Satanists, right? I've known a Satanist or two, but yeah, I mean, I think I think the... Um, just the specificity of any, like, not just Satanism, but of getting into the occult in general back then, like, you had to be more into it now just to do the legwork of like finding a group tracking down a satanic church or a druidic grove or an oto lodge like it was a lot harder to do so there was kind of this internal vetting process um and there are pros and cons to that but nowadays yeah i think people who might have more of a philosophical or you know general intellectual draw to those kinds of nietzschean ideas um, it's a lot easier to just kind of gravitate into that, and it's going to change the whole tone and tenor of a group like that. That's true. I and mean, even if we go back to the late 80s, the 8888 demonstrations, Church of Satan, famous Adam Parfrey, and some of the current 93 people, I think, were involved with that too. I mean, it had very sort of fascist um, aesthetic to it, you know. And then, of course, later in the 90s, we have Marilyn Manson with the Church of Satan. And he's also got the f- sort of fascist um, aesthetic going. There's, I guess the question for me is, is that just aesthetic or is there something deeper there about a desire for control that these sort of groups tap into? You know what I'm saying? Because, I mean, let's face it, the SS uniforms, Hugo Boss designed those. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah. But I think, uh, <laughs> pretty sharp. Pretty sharp. Yeah, but d- um, d- as far as the philosophy... Didn't a recent... <laughs> I thought a pop star recently got in trouble for saying that, didn't he? I can't remember which one it was. It was a uh, an older generation rock star, pop star. I can't remember which one it was now, um, but said that exact same thing and was uh, outed by his fan group. So be careful, you might be losing some subscribers there, Raymond. Oh, oh well, you know, I mean, being a fan of military uniforms from the 1930s is, uh, I think, quite different. There's a kid at Dragon Con that always walks around in the, a Nazi uniform, and they don't. The nerds don't beat him up. They get what he's doing of course he's usually walking next to like a guy dressed up like an american soldier yeah i mean so. it's often used as a sign of rebellion i know that the hell's angels often have ss logos on their bikes and that sort of thing so yeah i think it's probably just that really but <laughs> you can never tell all of out there's fan base is totally gonna out me now <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes he's fine anyway um <laughs> <laughs> well done Oh dear. So guys, thanks a lot for coming on and uh, helping me do the show. Uh, if people want to, what, well, what are you up to basically? Because you haven't done a sh- uh, an episode for a while, have you? In terms of uh, an interview. So w- what's coming up on Disinfo? 
the podcast. Well, well, you know, I've said this to my audience many times before, but we hope to be interviewing Graham Hancock. Yeah, in this and, and it's ready when it's fucking ready. All right, and, and that's exactly <laughs> right. So. <laughs> You don't like waiting three weeks between podcasts? Make your own podcast. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, we got some more Disinfo World news coming up. We have a new contributor, Joe Nolan, who, if you haven't heard the most recent episode of Disinformation World News, he brings a different reporting style to the show that we um, much more NPR-ish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Dry intellectual. Yes, but still very, very interesting. And a good, with lizards. And a, yes, with lizards and David Icke. And a good foil for Austin's um, holistic detection. So mm-hmm. check that out at disinfo.com slash podcasts. And Raymond, uh, Austin, rather, you have a, a, a an ongoing site yourself. Uh, what's the, is it Illuminati Scum? <laughs> Illuminati Scum. That's illuminati-scum.webs.com. Well, thanks for listening and thanks for the chat room. Like I said, we did this in front of a, a live audience and we had some great questions from the uh, from the audience and we'll do it again. And what I'll do is um, I'll put up a message on Twitter and on the site when we're actually going to do the next show because I think I quite enjoyed doing it live. So, uh, yeah, if you want to get in contact with me, uh, either go to the site and leave a comment, which is uh, sittingnow.co.uk or send me an email at ken at sittingnow.co.uk or you can hit me on Twitter, which is at sittingnow surprisingly uh or on myspace which is myspace.com forward slash sitting now i'm getting so bored of saying that word now but anyway yeah thanks a lot we'll see you next week and thanks for listening